Well, good morning. We're back in chapter one of Romans this morning. If you have been with us uh, for the last five weeks, we've been six weeks ago. We talked about Romans one, and we kind of set the stage of this church in Rome that Paul is writing to 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 deliver the message, the good news of the gospel of God. And then we spent four weeks where we took big chunks of Romans. And we divided it up and just kind of give us the whole overall view. Because often we'll get lost because we don't have context. Um, And so we want to make sure that we had context as we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Romans. Now, uh, quite a bit of time in Romans, if you remember that we were in Mark for a really long time, you're like, man, and Romans is, is longer and deeper. And maybe we're going to be there for even longer than we were in Mark, which was over a year. But we're going to break it up. And so each spring... We're going to spend some time in Romans, and we're going to pick up the next spring where we left off in Romans, but what we wanted to do is give us context about what is Paul writing? What is so good about this good news? What is so powerful about this gospel that would save that he's calling the the Roman church to be transformed, to live differently? Like, what's so good that would cause that transformation? And so, this morning, we're going back. And we're in Romans 1, and we're really going to key in on verses 3 through 4. Remember, Romans chapters 1 through 4 were about God and, and the power of God for salvation that's taken hold of by sinners like you and me. We saw that everybody's a sinner. You, me, everyone. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so in seeing that, we saw that it was by grace through faith that we are saved. Then in Romans 5-8, through 8, Paul shifts focus a little bit and he points to the fact that this great salvation of God in the life of the Redeemer moves them, in the life of the redeemed moves them from death to life, which was a big deal. You and I were dead, dead. We couldn't bring anything to the table. And then Jesus saves us and now we have life and we have life abundantly to walk in to worship God with. And so 1 through 8 was kind of this, this focus on the individual. And then he backs up in 9 through 11 and looks at the redeeming work of God from all of creation to glory. And so we saw that how, how has he included the, the Jews? How has he included the Gentiles? What was the purpose of Israel? And, and God has always had a chosen people that he has redeemed and they have always taken a hold of him the same way that you and I take hold of him today, by faith. And then this last week, we looked at the last five chapters of Romans because Paul says, listen, all of that is beautiful and all of it is true and it's a done deal. So in light of that, if you've taken hold of God by faith, what do you, what do you live like? What does that mean for you? And so for five chapters, he talks about like, what does worship look like in the life of the believer? And it look like simple things like laying down your wants and your desires for someone else. It looked like big things by, like being reconciled, like people that have hated one another and, and now they're being brought back together and being reconciled in Christ. And he talks about the union that each one of the believers has. No matter what your heritage is, no matter what your skin color is, no matter where you've been or, or how you grew up and the, the differences that you have, you are united in Christ. And so we took hold of that beautiful thing. And we said, man, we want to live that way. We want to respond to this good news of the grace that we've been given with gratitude and generosity. 
And so this week we go back and we begin to dive into some smaller nuggets. Smaller nuggets because they're smaller portions, but man, they're still sweet and beautiful. And this week, we look at Jesus. Because what we're going to see is that this gospel that, that has compelled Paul to become a servant, a bondservant, some, some translations say slave, like everything that he is, he sings, you're all to us like we do. How does he do that? What has compelled him to do that? Well, it's this good news, this gospel of God that we see in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, to all of this book, right? The whole thing points to the reality of who God is. And then the fullness of God has been expressed to us in the person of Jesus, which we see in verses 3 through 4 which he promised before and through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the, God, the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This week we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and looking at Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the beautiful things is often in the New Testament, that is how, with different authors, different writers, that's how they would refer to Jesus. It would very rarely do you just find the name Jesus. You usually find the name Jesus with his title, like who he is. Not just a name, but what is his role, what is his function. And often it would be Jesus Christ our Lord, or Jesus Christ my Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's a reality that Jesus is both a person, a historic person. We have evidence that he lived. We have evidence that he died. We have evidence that he rose again. So there's, there's a, a true factual reality of Jesus. And there's also a greater reality that none of us could observe, but he is actually the Son of God. And we see it because he fulfills all of the promises of what the Son of God would look like, what the Messiah would look like when He came. And He rose from the dead. This morning, we're going to need the Holy Spirit to actually speak that to our hearts. Because like, we could have eloquent words, we could have great sound arguments, but it's going to take the Spirit of God working in our hearts to, to put aside what we want and to tell us what God wants. And so let's ask Him to do that. Even as we talked about submitting, like we're submitting ourselves under the authority of God's word because we want to be the people that he's called us to be. Lord, we need your ears today. We need your eyes. Open our eyes. God, take our hardened hearts and give us soft hearts. Hearts that would long to know you and trust you and see you. Hearts that when we see you and know you, we would, we would long to go and tell others about you. Lord, only you can do that today. So I pray for each and every person here. For those that have heard it thousands of times, who Jesus is, Lord, would you stir in our hearts a, a fresh passion, hearts aflame for who you are. God, and maybe for some of us who are hearing it for the first time, God, would you just radically change our world because of who you are. Lord, I pray for the youth. I pray for... Adults, I pray that we would all sit under the word, honoring you and glorifying you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Concerning the Son, 
It's a big deal that this Jesus is the Son of God. Particularly as he's writing to a church in Rome, as we've talked about, this church in Rome has Gentile believers, but it also has Jewish believers, right? People who have grown up with with a heritage of being a Jew. So they knew the law. They knew who God was. And so now Paul is writing to them and he's telling them, listen, not only do you know who God is, but you need to know that He is the Son, Jesus the Christ. And so it's a big deal. It's actually pretty radical for them to say yes, that the Messiah that they had longed for has come. Now to the Gentile, all of this is kind of new, so they're just stepping into all of it, right? It's not super challenging to to any of their history. It's challenging to their intellect. It's challenging to what they're being called to. But they don't have the the same history that the Jews would have. So the Jews are wrestling with this idea that this Jesus is actually the Son of God. Why can Paul tell them this? Because Paul was a Jew of Jews. Paul believed that the Scripture uh, was was so true that he, he clung to it, and he thought initially that the Christians were actually bringing a heresy, and so he persecuted them. That's how adamant he was about his Jewish heritage, his Jewish faith. But then Jesus in His kindness and in His grace met Paul on the road to Damascus. Parents, have you ever been wrong? Have you ever had to go back and say I was wrong? I can't imagine, like, we, and we've been really wrong, but I don't know that I've ever been to the, to the point of being wrong where I, I persecuted and I killed people for, for what I thought was right, and then I find out later that it's wrong. Like, imagine that. And so then Paul has the authority to stand on God's Word and say, yeah, I was wrong, and it's true. And he's so good and beautiful. Like the amount of guilt and the, and, and the, the shame that Jesus washes away for Paul is greater than anything that you and I could maybe even imagine. It's sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient to take a man like Paul, a man like Saul, and turn him into Paul. And so now, out of that sufficient grace, he teaches and writes and speaks and preaches about the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the one that he met on the road to Damascus, the one that had changed everything. We've said it a couple times, but uh, according to history, it looks like he went away into the desert for a couple years after meeting Jesus to try to reconcile. Like, if that's true, if my experience of Jesus is true and my heritage is true, how do those two things align? And out of that comes this beautiful letter to the Romans. That God is both the God of the Jew and the Gentile. How has He done it? He's done it in the work of His Son. We have John 1, 1 and 2 that are really clear about the fact that Jesus was with God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have, from the foundations of the world, Jesus being with God, Jesus is the Word, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So John's putting together this idea of the Trinity for us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That they were both in the beginning, and they were both God. 
And then in Romans 9.5, we have this given to us by Paul. To them belongs the patriarchs. Talking about Israel. To them belongs the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. That's, that's powerful. So what we're given is that God is, that the Son is the good news of God. So what the Son does is what God is doing. And what God is doing is what you see in the Son. The reality that we have a, a God who is holy, so much more holy than we understand. That means He's other than us. He doesn't do things the same way that we do. He does them perfectly in righteousness. This powerful God is also Creator God. Like when we think about God, these are the, these are the images that come to mind. Power, beauty, magnificence, glory. And then He's given us His Son. It's hard to understand the Trinity. I've heard a lot of really bad examples of what the Trinity is. One of them is it's a cherry pie, and it's cut into three pieces. And so from the top, you can see that it's three pieces, but on the inside, it's all one because it all congeals back together. I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I don't know. I don't understand how you have three separate beings that are all one being, but I know that it's true because God's Word says it's true and I've submitted my life to that and I've said, listen, I, God has done something in me so that I would believe His Word to be true and I'm going to live my life that way. And so he says that He's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All of them live in perfect harmony, glorifying one another. And so what we have in the Son is God's promise to redeem God's promise to redeem a people. That He would take a, a wayward and a sinful people and bring them into Himself only happens by God doing something. So we have this beautiful covenant of redemption. And that covenant of redemption is the story of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Like, what are they doing to redeem? But we automatically... Attribute that to us. We say, okay, so he's redeeming a people, so it's all about us. No, it's never been about us. It's always been about God getting the glory. And you know how God is getting the glory? Because the Son is glorifying Him. The Son is walking in perfect obedience. The Son is humbling Himself to do the will of the Father to redeem a people like you and me for His own good pleasure. But we still don't become the center of the story. The center of the story is God and the work of God through His Son to honor Him and to glorify Him and to obey Him. This beautiful covenant that God has made with Himself that He would redeem a people for His own glory. And He's done it through the work of the Son. It's applied by the Spirit in the life of the believer. Man, that's powerful. But it's, it's not about us. It's about God, and yet we play a key part in it. Without us, there's no people. Without us, there's no taking hold of the promise that the Son had from the Father. And so you and I get to be, because of grace, through faith, we get to be part of this story. And it's beautiful. 
This is the covenant of redemption. It's a reality between the Father and the Son. And as you look at this, the way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one is the way that we are called to be one. Jesus said it in the upper room. He says, God, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Would you do that work in them? To make them one like you and I are one. That means that that they have different roles. Right? God the Son has the role of being obedient to God the Father. I was thinking about it in in marriage too. We have different roles, but none of them are are above or below. We just have different roles. And then when we walk in perfect relationship, the relationship that God has called us to, it looks like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Us being one as they are one. Man, it just blows my mind. Like if Chris is loving Myra well, he is reflecting the image of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Like that's crazy that we've been called to be part of that and that we get to share that with the world. And if any of it would be righteous and good and like altogether true, it's from God. It's God working in us. And so the, the call then isn't to work harder to make that happen. The call is to trust God, to walk in faith-filled obedience to Him, to truly love one another. This idea of service and obedience, love and care, glory and praise, all of that is found in right relationship with God. Because that is what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are doing. And then Jesus is saying, I want you to be like us. I want my people to reflect God in that way. And we're adopted into this covenant relationship How? Through this work of the Son. Concerning the Son. The only way that we know God is through the Son. John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is talking. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. This is what we're given in the Son. The fullness of God. To know the Father. To know the Spirit. We know the Son. So, concerning the Son, and then you have two according to's. Read it in verse 3. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. There's two, thing, two ways that we know the Son. According to the flesh. He's descended. He, he was actually born. He was born a babe. Probably a lot of you know that. You could probably sing a couple songs about it. Jesus was born a babe in a manger. Right? In the flesh. Jeremiah 23.5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This Messiah that would come, the one who would save the people, would come through the line of David. Which is why in the Gospels, you have these, each of them begins with a lineage. Right? Matthew and Luke both begin with the, the lineage of how 
that we get from David to Jesus? Because it's important. Because the promise of God was that the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One who would come, would come through David. And so, we have this historic account. Yes, Jesus descended from David. So according to the flesh, He is the the righteous one, the Messiah who would come. And then we have according to the Spirit. Verse 4, declared by the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in power is the one who would declare that not only is He a, a, a real Man in the flesh, but he is the Son of God because everybody else submits to death, but he has ruled and conquered death through the power of God. I think that often we will um, just kind of gloss over and include in power as like the part of this phrase, but power is important here. Because when you think about God the Father, and we've already discussed this, you think about the Creator, the one who, by the power of His Word, spoke and things came into being. And we, we don't really, I mean, maybe, maybe you do. I don't really have a hard time with that. Because God, if He's real, is other than me. And I don't even try to like put me in the same class as God. So God can speak. God can do powerful things. God can part the waters. God can do all kinds of miracles. And I don't have a problem with that because He's other than me. Like He's the one who did this whole thing. But then when you get to Jesus and you say, well, He's a man, now I have a hard time sometimes with that. Because I'm trying to relate to Him as me. And I realize I can't do those things. And so, this is what we have in Jesus. We have a a man, yes, fully man. But he's also fully God. Which means that when when he's declared to be raised from the dead by the disciples who see him, by the multitudes that see him, that means that he was fully man, but then he steps out of my box that I put him in, and he's fully God. He's raised with power. The same power that God the Father has when He speaks. It says that Jesus was with God in creation, creating all things. Like That's the person that we see. That's the God that we see in Jesus. The Spirit of holiness declares. That word declares can sometimes be um, translated as determined or appointed. It wasn't like he wasn't God until he was declared that. No, he's always been God. But in that moment, at the resurrection, he actually steps into the role fully and says, these are my people. This is my inheritance because you promised me. Remember we talked about that that relationship that God the Son and God the Father have, that God the Father promises a people. Well, when Jesus atones for that people in his death, In His resurrection, He takes hold of those people and He says, those are mine. That's my people. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I would invite you to spend some time there this week. We're going to 
kind of move through this pretty quick, but Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in chapter 15, is explaining like what happened in the resurrection. Start in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I read that and I was like, man. That's why this is important. When he writes concerning the Son. That's why he gives testimony to both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. Because it's important that, that Christ had to raise from the dead. Otherwise, what are we doing here? Like, this is ridiculous. We're wasting our time. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then everything that we say is true, we get to take hold of because we died with Christ and we rose again with Him. That's why we take that time in baptism. This, like this beautiful representation of you dying. Dying to yourself. Dying to the ways of this world. Being raised again with Christ. So that now you have you move from death to life. You take hold of all of the things that God has for you. Paul says, listen, this is so important that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We're putting a lot of hope in this truth. Which is why we can't wash it down. There's a, this has always been the case in the church. And it's under attack today just as much as it's always been that, that Jesus was not real or that He was not really God. That He was not fully man or that He was not fully God. But if you start looking back into church history, the first, many of the first councils that, are take, that take place that are discussing like deep theological truths and doctrines are on these two things. Is Jesus both fully man and is He fully God? It was so important to recognize that Jesus is both those things and that He rose from the dead. Because otherwise, all of this is in vain. Otherwise, it's all for naught. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. He goes on. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's beautiful. That's powerful. He says, listen, all of that's, all of that's true. It would be a waste if it wasn't true. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. How can Paul say that? He saw him. Jesus came to him. Grabbed hold of him and said, you are mine and I am yours. Like bright shining light. He goes blind. Go back, read the story in Acts 9. Paul meeting Saul, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Radically changed. So much so that he changes his name, changes his whole trajectory of life. 
so that he becomes, instead of a persecutor of the church, a proclaimer of the church, a proclaimer of the good news of Christ. This is the good news. Jesus has risen from the dead. You don't have to wait till Easter. I know it's a couple weeks away, but you don't have to wait till Easter to celebrate the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We get to see it today. We get to see it as He transforms us and takes us from old Joel to new Joel, right? The one that's being changed, that, that actually loves, that actually cares because of the power of the resurrection, that I'm dead to my sin and I'm alive in Christ and I get to walk in His righteousness today. This is the good news. I love the way Paul Tripp writes. If you've hung out at all, you know that. He says this, Every point of the theology of Scripture, when rightly understood, leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now you may think, Paul, how can you get from the words, let us make man in our image, to the hill of Calvary? The answer is that the image of God is most powerfully expressed and most fully seen in the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. On earth in the flesh, Jesus stands before us as the ultimate image bearer. In Him, the image is not dented or damaged in any way. In Him, we see God's image in perfect expression in every decision, every word, every thought, every desire, and every aspect of His character all spotlessly righteous. It is an amazing, important, and life-changing thing to behold. All of this centers around Jesus. Jesus, who is everything that He said He was. The Jesus who is fully God and fully man. Okay, that's true. Paul's writing this in Romans. And then we get to the end of verse 4. And this is where we're going to be really challenged. Like, if you haven't been challenged yet, Hold on, verse 4. By His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Those things can't be separated. Like, we try to do it. I, I, I may have used language in the past that said, Jesus is, a, is my Savior and I'm being conformed to Him being my Lord or I'm being changed. I'm learning that He's my Lord those types of things. Like, you can't separate those two things. Because here's the beauty. Jesus has always been Savior and Lord. And if you're His, then you come to Him and He is Savior and Lord. Now, Savior, we take and we say, yeah, He's the one who has saved me from my sin. And that's really sweet. Hard to believe sometimes because i got a lot of sin. But really sweet when I can take hold of that. The... The issue that I run into is when I go to say He's my Lord because that means that He gets to tell me what to do. He tells me how to live. I'm no longer mine. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. So that my every action, my every thought, my every word, my every feeling are being conformed to His image, yes, but they're also not... Like, I don't get to live the way that I want to live anymore. I read God's Word and I say, okay, God, this is how You've called me to live. So I'm going to walk in obedience by faith through grace. And there's, there's grace. Like, it, it's not an initial grace. This Gospel is not the initial thing that you enter in and then now you've got to do it all yourself. No, He continues to change us. But if your vision of what it's going to be like on the other side is anything other than Jesus... If you think that it's going to be comfortable or, or um, like really happy, I don't know if it's going to be really happy in, the, in this life. I know that we're going to have joy. I also know that He promises suffering. Like this life is hard. 
But what we will have is we will have Jesus. Both the, the gospel that is his life, his death, and his resurrection. We will have the person of Jesus with us. You see, this Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus, it's his human name. It's the name that was given to him. But even that, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him what he's supposed So, like, it's not we gave him that name, it's his name. In Matthew 121, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save people from their sins. You see, even in that verse, we see that he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah that would come to rescue God's people for God. Not just Gentiles, but the Jews also were looking to the one who would come. And their hope was in the obedience that they would walk in was by faith in the God who promises, the God who promised that he would save them. Jesus Christ, and I want to look at Lord. Psalm 146.10 says this, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. When we say Jesus Christ our Lord, we're acknowledging that He's both Savior and He is Lord over all, forever. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.23-28 help us to, to see what this means. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's that work of the Son honoring and glorifying the Father. See, God, gives, God the Father gives the Son a people. Jesus redeems that people and takes hold of them and then He gives them back to the Father. Look, that's what it says in 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That gets a little confusing. But it's saying he's going to put everything in subjection, but not himself because he's God. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This lordship, that Jesus is Lord of all. We have a promise that one day we're all going to acknowledge that fact. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The beauty is that by grace you and I get to proclaim that today. We don't have to wait. <laughs> we get to proclaim the good news of Jesus today. Finally, I just want to look at that little word that we kind of lose sight of, but it's our Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's, he's ours because we are His. We sang earlier, Behold our God. Like you and I have access to the Holy God because of the work of Jesus that He would claim us and, and He would pull us in and say, You are my people. Exodus 6-7. It's always been the promise of God. Exodus 6-7. Like the second book of the Bible. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Jesus is all of these. He's a real man. He's the Messiah, the Anointed One, and He's Lord. Do you believe this today? Do you believe that that's true? That He's your God? 
Because we have this promise in Romans, Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I love it. And then we get to walk in obedience believing that same thing to be true. Continuing to, to both receive the grace of God and out of gratitude for that grace, we live generous lives. And the greatest generosity we can show is proclaiming this good news to others. Sharing it with others. You can go out and you can share food and you can share water and you can meet needs, but if you're not sharing the greatest need that we all have, what are we doing? So that's our challenge today. Like, Take hold. Believe that Jesus is everything that He said He is. As you believe that, see, how, see what that means for you. See the joy that that brings you. See the life that that brings you that you move from death to life. And then go... And be the people of God who would proclaim and share that good news with others. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank You. God, we thank You that even today we've seen, we've seen You. We've seen You in Your Word and we've remembered that You have purchased us, Lord, and we're going to take communion and we're going to remember the tangible evidence that, that You died. You gave Your life so that we would have life. God, thank You. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for the atonement. Thank You for the resurrection power, Lord, that says, You are mine. You are my people. I'm Lord. I'm ruler. Lord, You've you've said that in Your resurrection. So, Lord, we submit to Your rule today. We thank You that You are Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we rejoice in the hope that is Your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.